Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Secret of the Samurai Sword by Phyllis A. Whitney. Volume 6, Chapter 13, Obake Night. When her shoes were on, Celia stood up on the wide stepping stone that was placed on the ground at every Japanese threshold. She was reluctant to leave Sumiko. There were still things she wanted to talk to her about. You have to go back inside? she asked. Could you come out for a few moments? There's something I want to show you. Sumiko asked her mother and was permitted to accompany her friend. However, Celia did not lead the way across the alley to their house, but turned uphill. It's only a little way. Something queer I found up here in the woods. I wonder if you've seen it. By some chance, Sumiko had never taken the left-handed path. As they walked behind the bamboo fences and up the hill, Celia thought about the crest she had seen on the scabbard. Did you notice those white crests were the same? she asked. I mean, on your grandfather's kimono and on the sheath for the sword? Sumiko nodded. That's his family crest. The pattern keeps reminding me of something, Celia said. Sumiko, however, was not thinking of crests. My grandfather has never given me a painting, she said in a low voice. There was something almost wistful about her tone, and Celia glanced at her in surprise. I shouldn't think you'd care, since you don't like things that are Japanese. He must feel that way, too, and believes that you aren't interested. Sumiko tucked her blouse in around the belt of her plaid skirt with an impatient gesture. Wistfulness now gone. That's right, I'm not. Well, you'd probably have to let him know if you'd like one, Celia said, ignoring her friend's words and speaking to what lay behind them. I think he's wonderful, Sumiko. Such a fine artist, and so very kind and understanding. Huh, you don't have to live there as his granddaughter, Sumiko said shortly. Celia let the matter go, for they had reached the small clearing in the woods where the angry stone man raised his sword and screamed soundlessly. The snarling, angry dogs crouched at his feet. Look, Celia said softly, this is what I want to show you. Sumiko stared at the scene and shivered. I sure wouldn't want to have that fellow mad at me. I wonder why he's tucked away in the woods like this. There's no gate to show it's a shrine. Above the stone man, a tall ginkgo tree pointed toward the sky. As they watched, the breeze stirred its leaves and set them to twinkling. All about them the wood rustled in the wind, and here in this dark hollow it seemed suddenly chill and dank. I don't like it here, Sumiko said. Let's go. Celia was willing, but this time she didn't turn. She remembered her previous fall. She looked around for the root that had tripped her and saw that here the grass had been trampled. Suddenly she bent to look more closely. There, before a shaggy bush, was the clear imprint of a bare foot set in the earth. Someone else has been up here, Celia said. She remembered Hero in the way he had not wanted her to take this path. Had he, for some reason, not wanted her to see those queer stone figures of the woods? Did he come here alone, and was this footprint his? But Sumiko was anxious to get away, and thought nothing of the footprint. So they went back to the sunlight of the alley and Celia returned to the house. 
In the living room, Gran was talking to Stephen. I really don't suppose there's any harm in staying up for one night, if that's what you want to do, though I must admit that it seems a bit futile to me. If this Japanese ghost had the reputation for appearing every night at a certain hour, then I'd even be willing to stay up and watch it with you. But to pick out just some random night and stay up to catch him doesn't seem very sensible. So it was the Obaka night that they were talking about, Celia thought. Stephen really meant to go through with it. He rumpled his fair hair and looked through the window into the garden. I know, but Hiro says it appears when the moon is right, when it shines into the garden late at night. If it isn't misty tonight, this might be the time. Oh? Gran's eyebrows went up. Then Hiro has seen the apparition, too. Well, no, but everybody his house knows when it has appeared because of the way his grandfather acts the next day. Excited and all keyed up. The others in the house haven't seen anything because you can only look into our garden from upstairs, where Mr. Sato's rooms are. Gran smiled suddenly. Who am I to interfere with scientific research? Bring Hiro over here tonight, if you like. I hope you'll be reasonably quiet and not keep Celia and me awake for the whole watch. Oh, hello, Celia. How did your visit with Mr. Sato go? Celia wanted to put into words her uneasiness about the Obake night, but she knew Stephen would only laugh at her. She wished it weren't happening as soon as tonight. Now there was no way to stop it. She gave her grandmother an account of the morning and showed her the iris painting in the fan. Even her brother looked at those things with some respect and said he'd like to have seen the iris painted. The only thing she omitted in her telling was Mr. Sato's remark about her being in tune with people and what he had said about the spirit of his ancestor. Grand listened to it all with interest. You were perfectly right not to bring up the subject of my book this time. But there'll be another opportunity. By the way, you and Stephen haven't been to Kiyomisu Temple yet, have you? That's one of the most beautiful sights in Kyoto. Why not make plans to go there next week? It's not so very far from here. Stephen said, Sure, I'd like to go but he cast a wary look on his sister, and Celia knew he was thinking that if he took her along, she'd do something foolish, so that he'd be sorry that she was there. Celia turned away, trying not to feel hurt and a little guilty. Was it always this way with brothers and sisters, she wondered? Sometimes she had the feeling that Stephen didn't really like her very much and that nothing she could do would ever please him. That thought made her ache a little, because she truly loved and admired him, and wanted very much to win his approval. During the afternoon it began to rain, and Celia found herself hoping there would be no moon, so the Obaka plan would be called off. But before dinner the drizzle lessened, and a wind began to blow the mists away. By dark the rain was over, there were stars out in the windy sky, and the moon would be up later on. Hero came over during the evening, his expression anxious behind his glasses. He had explained to his grandfather that American boys often visited each other's houses overnight, and Mr. Sato had given his consent. But of course, Hero explained, he had said nothing to his grandfather about the real purpose of his visit. Before they went to bed, Stephen announced that he and Hero were going to take a good look at the garden. When they went outside, Celia took off her socks and slipped into a pair of gaita instead of her shoes. 
She had been wanting to see what it was like to walk around in these clogs, and would they keep her above the mud and wet grass. At first it was hard to keep the cloth strips between her toes, and she felt as though she were trying to walk on stilts. Then Tani, who stood watching her in the vestibule, laughed and came down to show her that she was supposed to tip forward on the clogs with every step. Only then could Celia keep her balance and hold them on. They gave her a sort of rocking horse gait as she clattered across the stepping stones after the boys. Everything was damp and drippy, and the scent of pine spiced the air. The big moon was rising like a golden bubble in the dark blue sky, and a faint radiance silvered the garden. Stephen, however, did not mean to rely on moonlight. He had brought a flashlight so he could probe every shadow and examine every dark corner. Do you think somebody could climb over the fence to play a trick? Celia asked. That's what I want to make sure about, Stephen said, running the beam of the light along the stretch of bamboo fence that rimmed the alley. I suppose it's possible, though he'd have to do some steep scrambling. Hero shook his head. That would make too much noise. You would be hearing, he said. Maybe that's what woke you up the other time, Celia. Stephen suggested. Think you heard somebody climbing the fence? But Celia had no memory of any sound, either before or after she had seen the figure in the garden. Besides, an intruder would have to climb out again, and they would surely have heard that. The gate was high and could be locked with a bolt as well as a key. Stephen himself locked it, and the bolt made quite a rattle as he shot it across. Next they went around the side of the house and into the big rear garden where the figure had been seen. It could be that you just saw that bomb shelter shining in the moonlight and thought that was your ghost, Stephen went on. You do get awfully excited about stuff, you know? Celia shook her head firmly. The bomb shelter didn't wear a helmet and samurai clothes or have arrows sticking out of it. She tried to sound sure, but she still wasn't certain about the arrows. What if the branches of the pine tree behind the bomb shelter had only looked like arrows? What if she had imagined all the rest of it, too? She was no longer sure of anything, but she didn't want to admit that to Stephen. The flashlight picked out every section of the garden. It lit the space under the pine tree, startled the goldfish in the pond, made the stone lantern take a white shape in the glare. There's another possible ghost, Stephen said. Maybe it was the lantern you saw. And Hero laughed in appreciation. Celia didn't answer, and the light's beam slid along the rear fence on the side of the hill. If someone really wanted to get in, this might make a good place. But here the fence had been built higher for that very reason, and it seemed unlikely anyone could scale it without a ladder. Besides, an intruder would have to make quite a thud when he leaped from the top of the fence to the earth and that was something they would surely hear when they were alert to every sound. Or at least the boys would be alert, Celia supposed. What she wanted most was to put her head under the quilts and sleep right through until morning. When she had entertained her romantic notion of a gentle lady ghost drifting through the garden like wind-blown mist, she had been fond of the whole idea. But she did not want to see the tortured face of her memory again. It had been too weird too frightening, too unnatural. 
Satisfied at last, Stephen led the way back to the house, and they said goodnight to Gran on the way upstairs. The futons were laid out in the middle of each room as usual, and the ginger cat was curled up at the foot of Celia's bed. She stroked it and listened to its reassuring purrs. It was still purring when she got into her pajamas and crawled between the quilts. Through the thin fusuma, she could hear Stephen and Hero laughing and jumping around, as if they were practicing judo holds. Once, Gran stepped onto the veranda and said softly that no obake would ever be so foolish as to appear tonight unless they at least pretended to go to sleep. After that, everything grew quiet. But Celia could not sleep. She lay restless and tense, wondering if anything would ever happen. Neko-chan, the cat, must have sensed her restlessness and been disturbed by it, for after a while it left the foot of her bed and wandered away, its claws clicking against the straw tatami. Around midnight, the quiet was broken by the mournful note of the soba man's flute as he went his rounds offering bowls of hot buckwheat noodle soup to anyone who might be up at that hour. Always, always, Celia thought, no matter how far away from Japan she might be, she would remember those few haunting notes piercing the lonely quiet of the night, the flute and the sound of geita, these she would remember, and they would always mean Japan to her. Perhaps she dozed for a while. She could not be sure. Then quite suddenly she was awake again. There was the same prickling that had run through her before, warning her that all was not well. Beyond the paper shoji, she heard a faint sound that was like someone crawling very softly along the veranda. So Stephen and Hero were awake and listening, too. For a moment she was seized by an impulse to bury her head beneath the covers and hear nothing more until morning. But she had an even stronger desire to see what was happening. Soundlessly she slid back the quilts and crept across the matting to the veranda. There, still on her hands and knees, she could peer between the rails down into the garden, yet without being seen from below. A sidelong glance told her that Stephen and Hero had done the same thing. They too crouched there, watching the scene below in the bright moonlight. A cold finger seemed to touch the back of Celia's neck, and she realized that once again something was there in the garden. She saw the white, twisted face before she saw the rest. Then the samurai emerged, once more in full regalia and she could not be mistaken about what she saw. The figure did wear a helmet, the horn stood up plainly in the moonlight, and the loose full trousers of the historical costume could be seen quite clearly. Again, as she thought before, there were the arrows, piercing the wounded body, their tufted ends standing away from it. The figure supported itself for an instant, with one arm against the trunk of the pine tree, just as the warrior in the old picture had done. Then it staggered a few steps across the garden and seemed to turn about helplessly. The nightingale floor of the veranda squeaked, and Celia glanced at Stephen to realize in alarm that he was on his knees and that only Hero's hand upon his arm kept him from rising. Hero tugged at him 
and pointed across the alley. Celia looked toward the Sato house and saw that Chantaro Sato stood upon his own veranda, watching the garden of the Bronson house. Once more his vigil had been rewarded, and he too had seen the apparition in the garden. Mr. Sato called out suddenly in Japanese, speaking in a strong, clear voice. It seemed to Celia that the ghostly samurai turned briefly in his direction, and then away. A moment later it faded into the shadows, and the moonlight showed only on an empty garden. But now a light had come on downstairs in the Sato house, and Celia heard a woman's voice calling out anxiously to see what was the matter. The artist stood a moment longer, his head bowed, then he turned and went into the house to reassure his daughter. Let me go, Stephen whispered, wriggling out of Hero's grasp. I'm going downstairs to have a look. If there's anything there, it's still there. Come on, Hero. As he went past her on the veranda, Celia thought Hero looked badly frightened and not at all willing to go down there where the ghostly figures had appeared. Nonetheless, he followed Stephen, and they both ran down in their bare feet and out into the garden. Gran slipped into her yukata and came to stand sleepily beside Celia. What's the matter, honey? What was all that shouting? It was Mr. Sato, Celia said, and found that her voice trembled. The, the, the thing came again, and Mr. Sato tried to talk to it. Gran put an arm around her, and they stood close together, watching the beam of Stephen's light as he flashed it about the garden, probing the shadows as the moonlight could not. But there was nothing there. Downstairs, the ginger cat mewed plaintively, and now they could hear Tani and Setsuko stirring too. There were more lights coming on across the way in the Sato house. Everyone was awake this time. Stephen could be heard reassuring Tani and Setsuko, and a moment later, he and Hiro came back upstairs. We couldn't find a thing, Stephen said, tone puzzled. But there sure was something there. Samurai, just like you said, Celia. Guess you didn't dream it after all. Celia looked at Hiro, who had left off his glasses when he'd crawled from the bed. His eyes squinted a bit when Gran turned on the light in her room, and he seemed more nervous than ever before. What did your grandfather say when he called out? Celia asked. Hiro gulped. He said, Westless spirit, what do you wish? I saw it, but I don't believe it, Stephen said. He sounded baffled and a bit angry. It couldn't have climbed the fence as fast as that, and there was no place else for it to go unless it came into the house. I don't think it's hiding in our living room or scaring Setsuko-san or Tani-san. Well, ghosts or no ghosts, we're all wide awake and I'm hungry. How about something to eat? asked Gran. Hero felt his stomach uncertainly, not sure he would eat, but Stephen said it was a wonderful idea. Celia was willing too, so they all trooped downstairs and turned on more lights. Setsuko, who was ready to get up and fix anything they wanted, had to be persuaded to go back to bed, and Tani had to be assured that Gran was not helpless and could do things for herself. She did too. The kitchen clock said two in the morning when they all sat down to a meal of scrambled eggs and bacon toast, marmalade, and hot milk. 
and the food all tasted much more wonderful, Celia thought, than it ever could have in the daytime. Even Hero got over his nervousness about the ghost and managed to eat heartily of his western food. By the time their stomachs were full, the figure in the garden had once more grown less real, less believable. Gran talked about the strange things the mind could do. She said there had been occasions when people who thought they were going to see something impossible really did, like a mirage that was somehow thrown by the mind. There were so many things on this earth that men still didn't understand. After all, my own grandmother would never have believed in radio, let alone television. For all we know, this is something like that. Perhaps it's the very real emotion that Chentaro Sato feels about this thing that projects some sort of vision. She got quite carried away with this notion, though secretly Celia felt she was making things up as she went along. After a while, her voice began to make everybody sleepy and they decided to go back to bed, whereupon Tani, of all things, got up and started washing dishes. This time Celia fell asleep with a clear purpose in mind, and she was awake before the rest of the household in the morning, even though she had missed some sleep. She put on a cotton yukata and went down to the garden. Inch by inch she went over the ground that Stephen's flashlight had covered last night, and she found what she was looking for, prints of bare feet in the still damp earth. But unfortunately they were all over the place and clearly belonged to Stephen and Hero, who had come dashing out last night without bothering with shoes or gaita, so nothing was to be told by that. Then, just as she was about to give up and go back inside, the early morning light struck something that gleamed in the grass near the bamboo trees. She pounced upon it in triumph and picked it up, it was an arrow, a perfectly real, unghostly arrow. And she was pretty sure that the ghostly spirit of a samurai wouldn't go around stuck with real-life arrows. There had to have been somebody in the garden last night, somebody alive and dressed up to represent a samurai. How he could have made his way in and where he could have gone, well, there was the real mystery. Where could he have hidden? How could he have disappeared? The only place she could think of was that bomb shelter. She ran over to the door and shook it vigorously. It was locked as tightly as ever. 14. The Temple of Kiyomisu Celia did not show the arrow to anyone. She took it upstairs before the others were up and hid it in the darkest corner of her closet. If she showed that arrow to Stephen, she knew the whole mystery would be taken out of her hands. Now let him puzzle about the samurai, while she went ahead and solved the mystery herself. That would prove once and for all that she wasn't so dumb. Then he'd have to give her some credit, if she could solve it. During breakfast, however, she changed her mind about one part of her decision. That was because of Gran's attitude, which had reversed itself since last night. This morning, Gran was in a practical mood and somewhat worried about what had happened. I don't like to call the Japanese police into this, she told Celia and Stephen. Hiro had gone home before breakfast. There would be such a commotion. Japanese is a language of rather vague ideas, and everything has to be said several times in different ways to arrive at one meaning. Besides, 
the police might decide it was really a ghost and not do anything about it. It wasn't a ghost, Stephen said positively. Celia agreed, but she kept still. After breakfast, when Stephen had gone off for his judo lesson, she took the arrow into the living room and laid it beside her grandmother's typewriter. I found it in the garden, Celia said. I went down early this morning and looked. Gran turned the arrow about in her hands. Good for you. This may help us out. You know what it is, don't you? Well, yeah, it's an arrow. And that samurai thing had arrows sticking out of it. Gran nodded thoughtfully. That's true, but this arrow isn't much like the terrible weapons the real samurai used to fight with. It would only get by in the moonlight when no one could look at it too closely. This is the sort of arrow American children play Indian with. Let's ask Setsuko-san and Tani-san if they know anything about it. So the arrow was shown in the kitchen, though Gran didn't explain where it had come from. Tani recognized it at once her plump face alight with smiles. Belong small boy. Last family staying here. Must be getting lost. Someone had found it and picked it up, Celia thought. Someone who wanted to play a prank. Perhaps the boy in the last family had left a whole quiver of toy arrows behind. Gran led the way back to the living room. If someone is playing a joke, it may be harmless enough. It may be that between the boys and Mr. Sato, they gave whoever it was a good scare last night. Our ghost may think twice about reappearing. So it was left at that, and Celia put the arrow away again. When Sumiko arrived on Mrs. Nomura's heels for the doll lesson that day, she brought the unhappy news that her grandfather was ill. Hiro had refused to tell Sumiko exactly what had happened during the Obake night, but she gathered that her grandfather had seen the samurai figure and had tried to call to it. Now he was terribly upset because he didn't know what the spirit wanted. He had a fever and had gone to bed. Mrs. Nomura, listening to Sumiko, nodded wisely. If place of sword is not found, she said calmly, Gentaro Sato getting very sick, maybe dying. Don't say a thing like that. Sumiko cried, and Celia saw that she was near tears. Why not you go to Fortune Teller Priest and find out where Sword is? Mrs. Nomura asked, holding up Celia's doll approvingly to admire the work she had put into her sewing. Fortune Tellers? Sumiko cried impatiently. Because I'm an American, that's why. I don't believe in Japanese fortune tellers. Besides, if Grandfather ordered Hiro's father to destroy the sword, then there isn't any sword to look for. Mrs. Nomura put the doll down gently and looked at Sumiko with calm, untroubled eyes in her finely wrinkled face. It's very hard to destroy sword, she said gently. Maybe so, spirit wishes to know place of burying. Sumiko stared at the little woman tearfully for a moment. Then she dabbed at her eyes and said she was sorry. Mrs. Nomura accepted her apology quietly and went on to other matters. Soon the summer festivals would begin in Kyoto, she said. There would be the great bond festival first, the festival of the dead, 
when everyone paid respects to his ancestors. There would be processions, dances at shrines and in the streets, and people would come from all over the world to see these marvelous sights. Celia and Sumiko were fortunate to be in Kyoto at this time. Mrs. Omura made an imaginary festival procession for them with the two dolls right there on the tatami, and Celia knew that she was trying to distract Sumiko from her worry about her grandfather. The festivals would include the Night of Bonfires, the Night of Daimonji in particular. They would see a great and famous sight then. Celia remembered the day when they had been on the roof of the department store and the burned place had been pointed out on the hill. All this sounded exciting and colorful. She hoped Mr. Sato would be well again so that he could enjoy these happenings. When Mrs. Nomura left, Celia gave Sumiko the details of what had happened the night before, but she did not show Sumiko the arrow. If word of the arrow got to Gentaro Sato, it might make him worse instead of better. She had a strong feeling that even though it upset him, he needed to believe in the samurai spirit. If he knew it was only a joke, the knowledge might disturb him all the more. In the next few days, Grand too began to talk about the coming excitement of the festivals and dances. Kyoto would explode into color, and they would see such magnificence as they had never imagined possible. Let's get in our visit to Kiyomisu before the throngs arrive. Perhaps Hiro and Sumiko would like to come with us. I'm going to talk with a Buddhist priest up there, so we can all go together. Then you young people may wander about by yourselves and meet me later. And of course you must each get a stampu book. You can get them on the little street of stores going up the hill. What a stampu book was, Celia didn't know. But Gran turned to other matters just then, and Celia forgot about it until the day when they were climbing the hill to the beautiful temple of Kiyomisu the Temple of Clear Water. It was another uncertain, rainy season day. There had been grayness and mists earlier, then patches of sunshine, but no one here ever seemed to stay home because of threatening weather. Sumiko, much to Celia's disappointment, didn't come after all. She was worried about her grandfather, and Hiro said sadly that the old man was no better. As Celia was beginning to discover, the supposedly unemotional Japanese was a very emotional person indeed. He might hide emotion, lest it disturb and offend others, but his feelings were quite often very near the surface. The steep hill that led to the temple was lined on both sides with tiny, open-front shops. There were shops selling ceramic masks, teacups, and dishes of all sorts. This was Teapot Hill, the main pottery street of Kyoto. In a shop near the top of the hill, they stopped so that Celia and Stephen could buy stampu books. The book Celia chose was a small one, about three and a half by four and a half inches. It was bound attractively in blue patterned silk. There was no spine in the book since it opened on both sides, and the pages could be pulled out accordion fashion till they were all exposed. Stephen's was green and a little larger. The shopwoman had an assortment of various colored stamp pads and an array of stamps, and she proceeded to stamp page after page with the seals of the various places they had visited around Kyoto. There was a little picture of Nijo Castle, a square mulberry stamp of Yasaka Shrine, and so on. The Japanese have a lot of fun with these books. When they go on a trip, they dash out of a train, 
the minute it stops in a station, and get the station men to stamp their books. For a gift of a few coins, you can have them stamped at any temple. It was the temples that started the idea. Now the street ended at the foot of wide steps, and high above rose the buildings of the temple. A tall red pagoda towered directly above them. To their left was a small building with several little images sitting outside, and as they watched, Celia saw a man come up to pray. The head of one of the small gods was turned in the wrong direction, so the suppliant took it in his hands and turned it about so that it was watching him. Then he clapped his hands and said a prayer over them, now sure of the god's attention. Stephen started to laugh, and Gran hushed him quickly. Stephen, don't forget that the things that we do seem every bit as funny to the Japanese, but they are at least polite enough not to laugh in our faces. Up the steps they went, along with streams of Japanese tours constantly pouring into the temple grounds. Like Stephen, most of the men in the crowds had cameras, and frequent pauses were made so that everyone could take pictures. Beyond the red pagoda at the top was a fountain where a coiled bronze dragon spouted water, and here the devout stopped to rinse their hands and mouths before they went on to the temple buildings. Hero was a Buddhist, and he paused to do as the others did so that he could enter the temple grounds with clean hands and mouth. At a gateway they paid a few coins and were given tickets in receipt, narrow strips of paper with a beautiful sketch of Kiyomisu printed upon them in delicate pink. It was like an equally beautiful green ticket that Stephen had brought home from Niju Castle. Well, here we are, Gran said. I'm going to have a look at the view, then I'll go to my appointment. In the front, the temple had been built on an embankment held in by a great slanting stone wall several stories high, but toward the rear it was supported by huge pilings made of the trunks of whole cedar trees, perhaps hundreds of them, towering into the air to hold the temple building on a broad platform. Celia leaned beside Gran on the railing at the edge of the platform and looked out upon the tremendous view. Straight below was a deep ravine with a clear stream running through it, and trees so thick you could scarcely see through them. Among the trees across the ravine rose a little pagoda. Beyond, to the right, lay the gray checkerboard of Kyoto. The air was so clear and piney to breathe that Celia drew breath. You'll be blowing yourself up like a balloon if you take in so much air. But I know how you feel. It's heavenly. And I see Stevens having fun, too, with his camera. It looks as though Hero and you will have to stick together. Anyway... I'll meet you all in about a half an hour. Let's say at the pavilion of Lafcadio Hearn's dragon. Hero will know. And she went off, hurrying to her appointment with the Buddhist priest in one of the many temple buildings. Stephen wanted to take pictures and wander around to suit himself, while Hero wished to say a prayer for his grandfather at a certain temple back under the hill where there was a waterfall. It was a temple devoted to Fudo Mio, he said and Celia's attention was caught because Fudo was the flaming god of her scrap of temple paper. She went with him. But this Fudo Mio did not look anything like the picture that she had found in the lacquer box. This image, too, carried a sword, however, like both the picture and the little stone man in the woods. 
A notion seized her, and she felt in her pocket for the pencil she usually carried. But this time she had no sketchbook along. However, the stampoo book would do nicely. She opened it to one of the small white pages and drew a picture of the angry stone man, the crude stone lantern, and the two snarling little stone dogs, just as she had seen them in the woods. When she finished, she showed Hero the picture. Do you know what this is? she asked. There was no change in Hero's smiling expression, but behind his glasses, his eyes blinked twice rapidly. He didn't answer, pretending not to understand her question, but Celia wouldn't let him off. You know where these figures are, don't you? she persisted. They're the figures in the woods behind our house. Hero continued to smile at her vaguely, and Celia felt as though a door had been politely closed in her face. Is this a god? Celia tapped the figure she had drawn. This time Hero nodded and gestured toward the waterfall behind him. It's the same god as here, Fudo Mio. The same one? But he doesn't look anything like this. Celia was puzzled. Artists make many pictures, Hero said. Same god. But why are those figures there in the woods where nobody goes? To, to please the god, Hero said haltingly. Sometimes man builds small shrine for pleasing god. This one my family builds long ago. Oh, is that why you didn't want me to go up that path the other day? Because it's sort of a private place and you didn't want me there? Hero said a little stiffly. I am not wanting you there. Celia closed the Stampu book, but she was not altogether satisfied. She had a feeling that she had put an answer into Hero's mind, and he had just accepted it. But she still didn't know the real reason why he had not wanted her there in the woods. As if to change the subject, he picked up a light green leaf from the ground and held it out to her. You know what is this leaf? She recognized it at once. It's from a ginkgo tree. Sumiko showed it to me a while ago. He nodded. Is ginkgo leaf, but also is something else. It's the crest of the Sato family. Like so. He made another leaf and placed them stem to stem to make a symmetrical pattern. The family crest, of course. That was why the crests and Mr. Sato's had reminded her of something. This was the pattern she had seen on the sword sheath and also in the crest on his kimono. Both were stylized ginkgo leaves, and there had been a ginkgo leaf with the other things in the lacquer box. Excitement ran through her. Suddenly, right out of the blue, she had the answer to something. The cardboard key in the ginkgo leaf. Now she had a clue that made everything fit together. Now she knew where the key to the bomb shelter was. <laughs>